My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. My new book, Expat Secrets, is doing fantastic on Amazon right now. The book paints a clear picture on how to internationalize your life. We get into how to use the offshore markets to protect your assets, minimize your taxes, and grab yourself a second passport. We talk about the best places to live, the best places to hold your wealth, and the best places to run your business from. At the end of this book, you'll have a much clearer picture of how things fit together and what steps you need to take in your own life to diversify your business, wealth, and life overseas. You can grab a copy on Amazon today by searching Expat Secrets or going to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. You're going to love this conversation. Let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an American author best known for his book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, in which he played a role in the economic colonization of third world countries on behalf of corporations, banks, and the United States government. His book spent 73 weeks on the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers list and has been published in at least 32 languages. He has lectured at Harvard, Oxford, and more than 50 other universities around the world, and he has been featured in dozens of TV and radio shows and publications around the world. Please welcome to the show, John Perkins. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mikhail. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. I will tell you right off the bat, I've read a couple of your books. They're just fantastic and like nothing I've ever read before. Glad to hear it. So why don't we take a couple of minutes and explain to the listeners what is an economic hitman and how did you get working in this originally? Yeah, well, I went to business school uh, and uh, when I graduated, I was uh, going to be drafted. I didn't believe in the Vietnam War at all. uh, And so I uh, joined the Peace Corps. But before I did that, I had an interview with the National Security Agency, the the infamous NSA, and they put me through a series of lie detector tests. And then they encouraged that that I would make a good economic hitman back then. And then they encouraged me to join the Peace Corps. It's a long story, but basically they encouraged me to join the Peace Corps, go to Latin America, learn another language, learn survival techniques, and said that when I got out, uh, I could uh, serve them, probably through a private corporation which is exactly what happened. After three years in the Peace Corps, I joined a, a pretty well-known, cons- well, it was actually, we were not a well-known consulting firm, Charles T. Main. We were pretty undercover. We had about 2,000 employees, but we stayed under the radar pretty much. I became chief economist pretty quickly at that company. Ended up having between 20, between 30 and 50 employees working for me at different times. And my real job was that of an economic hitman, and that was to identify countries with resources our corporations covet, like oil, arrange huge loans to those countries from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually went to the country. Uh, the money would go directly to American corporations, uh, primarily engineering firms like Bechtel, Halliburton, Brown & Root, Stone & Webster, my own company, Charles T. Main, uh, General Electric, Westinghouse, to build big infrastructure projects in these countries that made our corporations very wealthy. They had made huge profits and helped a few rich people in the country 
the people who own industry and commerce because they benefited from more electricity, better highways, better ports, the things that we built. But the rest of the country suffered. The majority of the people uh, lost out because money was diverted from health, education, and other social services to pay the interest on the debt. And in the end, the principle could never be bought down. That was part of the plan. So we'd go back and say, hey, you can't pay your debts, so sell your resource, oil or whatever, real cheap to our corporations without environmental or social regulations, or let us build a military base on your soil, vote with us on your next United Nations vote against Cuba, or some such thing. These things that we call conditionalities. And I have to say, Mikhail, that it was fairly easy to convince leaders of countries to accept these deals because, first of all, they and their cronies benefited from them, the, the, the wealthy people, the people who ran the country. But also they knew that if they didn't accept the deals, people we call the jackals would go in and either overthrow them or assassinate them. And unfortunately, there's a long record of people like uh, Mossadegh in Iran, a prime minister of Iran, democratically elected and Democratically elected president of Chile, Allende, and Arbenz of Guatemala, and Lumumba of the Congo, and Ziem of Vietnam, and on and on. There's a very long list of leaders of countries that didn't play this game and were taken out by what we call jackals. Now, that's basically the story in a nutshell. Well, and I was reading, when I was reading your book, a couple of the stories that really came through were the Hami Raldos and Omar Tarijos. Like, those are some pretty chilling stories, the way that you describe them in the book. Well, they were chilling. Uh, this was, Jaime Roldos was the democratically elected president of, of Ecuador, um, and uh, Omar Torrijos, the head of state of Panama. They were both clients of mine, and I liked them a lot. I respected them. They both were men with great integrity that would not buy into these deals. I particularly got to be very good friends with, with Torrijos, uh, uh, who was a very charismatic leader, of Panama, and also someone who was making a name for himself around the world because he was standing up to the United States. He was insisting that the United States turn the canal over to Panama, which ultimately Jimmy Carter, President Carter, agreed to do. But in the process, Torrijos became an, uh, an international figure because here was a guy, you know, David from a little country, Panama, standing up to the Goliath of the world's, one of the world's superpowers, the United States, and succeeding. And he also stood up for the rights of people all over the world, those people. Um, and both of these men were my clients. Uh, both of them refused to accept these deals that would put their countries in jeopardy. And both of them uh, died in uh, private plane crashes, two months apart from each other, uh, and all the evidence, including tests on some of the engines that were done by a Swiss laboratory, uh, indicated that these planes, these were not accidents. These planes had been set to... Crash. So how does that work then? Because, so you said you ended up being quite close friends with them, but see, so you went in to entice them to do something, and they didn't end up doing it, but you still ended up becoming friends with them. How did that work? It, it, well, it was, a, it was a difficult situation for me. I, um, first of all, let me say that the job I was doing, I thought was good. I'd come out of the Peace Corps, I was very idealistic. But in business school, and then according to all the World Bank models, uh, the way to help a poor country is to invest heavily in these big infrastructure projects, which is what we were doing. And st statistically, you can show that that works. So when you put a lot of money into a huge electrical system, uh, generating plants, distribution, transmission systems. You can show, it shows that over, over the next years, after that system is completed, the economy grows, GDP. And so all the evidence that we present, it shows that this, this is what's good for the country. But what I discovered after a few years being in there, uh, perhaps because I'd been in the Peace Corps, been on the other side, is that in fact, those statistics are very skewed toward the rich. So if a few rich families, the ones that own most of the industry and commerce in these countries, if those families are doing well, and they are because of the electricity, it looks as though the whole country is doing well. When in fact, money is being diverted from education and health care, et cetera, uh, 
is to pay off these loans so the poor people are, and the middle classes are actually suffering. And, and you know, Mikhail, today we know that something around 20 individuals, the numbers vary from, from, from uh, 12 to 26, depending on what the stock market is doing on any given day, but, but a very a half a dozen individuals, I mean, excuse me, two dozen individuals or so, have as much wealth as half the world's population. And in the last year, those those individuals gained about 12%. Now, this is a good statistic. While half the world's population, the bottom half, lost 11%. So overall, you show a net gain of 1% in the world. That doesn't reflect the fact that 11% of the, that, 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 that half the world's population was, was decreasing at 11%, while very few individuals were increasing at 12%. These Statistics are very, very deceptive, and I began to see that as time went on. But at the beginning, I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to convince these presidents to accept these deals, because all the models showed that it was helping. And Omar Torrijos, particularly of Panama, who, who, I, who I felt was a friend, uh, Jaime Valdos was a little bit more aloof, uh, but Valdos was very, very friendly, and I spent a lot of time with him. He, he showed me this. He taught me that th these things were wrong. And at that put me in a very difficult position because my job was to convince him to take the loans and also those. But I respected the fact that they were standing up to the system. They were not accepting these loans. At the same time, I feared for their lives because I knew that if they didn't buy into these deals, something was likely to happen to them, either a coup to overthrow them or assassinations because I knew what had happened to our friends of Guatemala and the end of Chile and other Latin leaders uh, along the line. So, yeah, I was in an extremely difficult position from a conscience standpoint once I began to see the story behind the story that we were all told. And this story is still being told in business schools. You want to help a poor country? Take out, let it, convince it to take out huge loans and build big infrastructure projects to make a few foreign companies very wealthy. The Chinese, incidentally, are playing the same game around the world. Well, because I, I can imagine how stressful that must have been, because here is a man that you respect and look up to and you're learning from. And at the same time, you're starting to realize, you're starting to understand that this is not what you originally thought it was. This is not, you know, you don't join the Peace Corps to to go there and help take over countries. I'm sure you went there with a very uh, good intentions in your heart. And when you realize that, you know, later on in your career when you're doing what you're doing is actually harming nations and harming people i think that must have been very stressful yes um mikhail it was it was a tough situation and it was complicated by the fact that i grew up an only child uh the son of a of a teacher at a boys boarding school in new hampshire and my dad didn't make much money at all but the school gave us a house, and I ate with over 200 boys from the time I was about four years old in a big dining room. Um, most of these, in fact, in those days, all these boys came from very wealthy families. Uh, a lot of them Latin American, from Venezuela, which was a very wealthy country at the time, Argentina, Peru, all, all different countries. And um, I spent a lot of time with these boys. My dad was a Spanish teacher, and they spent a lot of time at our house learning English from him, and they became good friends, and I heard about these countries. And then when I went to that school for four years in high school, you know, my classmates would go home for Christmas vacation and come back with phenomenal stories about the parties they'd been in, the orgies. It was just amazing, you know, in, in Paris and in Buenos Aires and Caracas and New York, uh, all, all over. I spent Christmas vacation in the school gymnasium, shooting baskets by myself or hitting a tennis ball against the wall. So I had this real strong desire uh, to go to the places I'd heard about, and suddenly I'm doing this. So as, in, as my job, I, I was very I was well paid. I flew first class around the world for the first time in my life. I was now going to all these places that were so exotic that I'd heard about all my life and never been to. I was whining and dining in the best restaurants, staying in the finest hotels. Hanging out with presidents and the beautiful women. I grew up in a boys' prep school. I was, you know, it was just so. <laughs> you know, once I once I understood the story behind the story, I didn't want to understand it. And I think this is an important part of 
the, the story that needs to be told now about so many people in these kinds of positions that even though they may realize that they're not quite doing the right thing, uh, they think they're, they're living the American dream or whatever dream, or the materialist dream. And there's a whole system there to tell them that they are doing the right thing. So whenever I would, I would go, I went to my bosses several times and said, Hey, this isn't right what we're doing. They would send me to what today would be called, uh, human, you know, the human resource department or something. Where there were psychologists or people in our company that were there to convince us that, yeah, we were doing the right thing. And here's the statistics to prove it. So there was, it was a, it was a trap that I got myself into. And it, it took a while. I had a, a moment of enlightenment at one, one time when I really, really saw that I could no longer go on and do this. Um, and that happened in, in the Virgin Islands. Uh, it was, uh, it, I just, I had an awakening, you might call it. But yeah, it was a, it's a, it's a very interesting and complicated situation that we find ourselves in sometimes. Okay, so what year did you stop being an economic hitman? What year was it that things like this, when you said enough is enough and, and you decided to walk away? I, I got out in 1980. So, okay, so you got out in 1980. I'm just trying to make, uh, figure out the timeline. Yeah, I, did, I, was, I, was, I had that job for 10 years. Do you think that this type of behavior is still happening in the world, or have we moved past this corporatocracy type of uh, environment on the planet? It's gotten worse, which is why about 12 years after Confessions of an Economic Hitman came out, I, I wrote a book called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which repeats much of what's in the, in the old Confessions, but it has a whole new section, 15 chapters, of updating how this has gotten worse around the world. Because the model that we were using um, back then was primarily used uh, to exploit third, what we call third world countries or developing countries. Uh, in, in more recent years, that same model has been used throughout Europe and the United States and what, what we call the developed world. You know, this idea of using debt essentially to enslave people. And maybe that's kind of a strong word, but it, I think it's relevant. So, you know, in recent years, we've seen debt in the United States, for example, huge debts uh, arising for education. So kids get out of graduate school today or in any college, but especially business schools, et cetera, they, they may be highly motivated to do good work, but they owe two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. So they have to go to work for big corporations. They can't go out and do um, good stuff or work for nonprofits. They can't afford to. And we see huge amounts of, of healthcare debt in the United States and, and some other places too. So there's education debt, healthcare debt, credit card debt, all kinds of debt that's used this way. And of course, fear tactics have become even greater. And, and, and now recently with the, the Trump administration, we're seeing we're waking really a cold war with, with, with Russia. Um, so that's gotten worse. And at the same time, when I was in the business, it was kind of generic, you know. We we wanted to convince countries to accept these loans and then hire U.S. corporations, and we really didn't care which corporations, as long as our own corporation got some piece of the deal. But we didn't really care whether the construction company was Bechtel or Halliburton or Brown and Root, as long as it was a, a one a U.S. company. Uh, that still goes on. But in addition to that, today every major corporation has its equivalent of, of economic hitman, and this ranges from you know Amazon and Google to uh, Nike and, and, and Walmart and <laughs> McDonald's, they all have these people that are going out into the world and trying to strike better deals. Um, you know, a, a blatant example of that recently was Amazon and, and the deals that it, it, you know, the way it pitted cities against each other for their new headquarters, which they finally selected Northern Virginia and New York. And of course, now the deal with New York has fallen through. But that was all done by the, essentially the equivalent of economic hitmen who work only for a corporation. So we've now still got the kind of people that I was. They're, they're still out there. But we've got another whole um, evolution, let's say, of, of ones who work for private corporations just to uh, benefit those corporations. So it's, it's really gotten, gotten bad. And in addition, um, the military complex has, has, re, has been reawakened. So... After the Vietnam War, which is about the time I, I came into this deal, as, as we were realizing we were losing in Vietnam, it became apparent that 
the U.S. military interaction were not doing very well. They hadn't done very well in Korea. We, we lost in Vietnam. And so the new form of, of expanding uh, U.S. Uh, interests around the world was through economic hitmen. And that lasted for quite a few years, but toward during the Clinton administration, the military uh, industry saw that it was it was losing out, um, and put a lot of pressure on uh, Washington to change that. Along comes 9/11 and the Bush administration, and this gives a perfect excuse for the to build up the military again. So today we've got both the economic hitman out there and the old form of imperialism, which is done through military actions. That's so intense. Yes, it's very intense. It's it's created what I call a death economy, an economic system that is based to a large degree on fear, and 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 warfare, and you know, over twenty percent of the U.S. official U.S. budget goes to military, um, and it's also based on destroying you know, the resources upon which it depends. It's a very short-term uh, view of what uh, prosperity means. It's, it's really a death economy that's consuming itself into extinction. Well, this is also interesting for me because on the show, we do talk about finances, we talk about money, we talk about protecting ourselves, but we usually come at things from an entrepreneurial standpoint. You know, I don't work in uh, in big business or big corporations or anything like that. Everything has always been, you know, providing for yourself and your family. So it's so interesting because I'm, I'm such a pro-business type of person, but really from the small, per, small business, you know, adding value to the economy, adding value to those around you and trying to help people. So when I start learning about, um, you know, these big corporations and their behavior overseas, like I, I do, I, I find it very shocking. I find it um, very hard to stomach. It, well, I agree. It, 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 it's, it's, it is. It's terrifying, too. Uh, I'm a capitalist, and and I'm pro-business, but we do not have capitalism today. Um, you know, my, my favorite definition of capitalism is it's a it's a it's a system that's where where business is owned by individuals, not by the government, and it's competitive, uh, reasonably competitive. There's also cooperation, but there's competitiveness. And today we we have these huge corporations that basically uh, get rid of competition in many different areas. Uh, and although government doesn't own the businesses, the businesses today own the government, at least in the United States, where, where you know, the, the uh, a CEO of a huge corporation, I would say, has a thousand, at least many, many more votes than I do in a presidential or any election, you know, not, not, not theoretically, but doesn't have any more votes than goes to the ballot box, but the money, uh, Buys the candidates, and and it said that you can own a, a senator in the United States for thirty five thousand uh, dollars. Now that senator may be owned by several different corporations. It's not just going to be exclusively for you, but he's going to represent your interests if you're given thirty five thousand dollars. That's that's a rough estimate. Uh, he's going to represent you. I don't I don't get that kind of representation as an individual. And if I'm a, an entrepreneur starting a corporation, I probably can't afford to do that. So we've got a very strange situation here where. I say I'm a capitalist, uh, and I say we don't really have capitalism in the world today. This, 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 this you know, this, this pockets of it. My grandson has a lemonade stand. He's a capitalist. That's he's successful at that. <laughs> but, but if you try to build a system to compete with, with, with Amazon or, or Google or Nike, you're going to be in trouble. Well, this is this, uh, moral dilemma that I suppose that I'm having in my head because like I just said, and you said, we're, we're both pro-business. We are capitalists. We want to add value. But it's like, where, where does that stop? Where does this, you know, where is the line drawn where, you know, ethical behavior opposed to getting into something like you talk about in Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where you're, where you're rigging the system against um, others, and you're taking favors from the government. Like, how do people know how far they can go? Because a lot of these things, they're not taught. I, I swear, ethics is just not taught anymore. Like, to really understand things like this, you have to dig really deep. I just want to take a quick break here. After I finished recording the conversation with Richard Mayberry, he made a very special offer to all my amazing listeners here at the Expat Money Show. 
he offered us a 40% off discount on his one-year subscription to Early Warning Report, his financial newsletter that includes 10 timely issues. If you live in the USA, you get it delivered physically to your door and electronically. And if you live overseas like me, he's going to send it to you electronically in a PDF. Every month when my report comes in, I print it out, sit on my balcony with an espresso, and read it all in one sitting. I rely on early warning report to understand how things fit together from that 40,000-foot view, how geopolitics, economics, and law are affecting my money today. Richard Mayberry's writing in Early Warning Report is the closest thing you are going to find to seeing into the future. If you want to learn more about this special opportunity and claim 40% off the cover price of Early Warning Report today, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. That's EWR for Early Warning Report. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm writing a book now, which is uh, the 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 day out in about a year, probably called uh, uh, "Touching the Jaguar," which is a an expression that comes from the indigenous people that I I work with. But it, it pertains to all of this. It means that we we have to confront our fears. We can't run from them. Um, and in that book, I, t- I I I address this subject. I I think that what we what we need to move into is a life economy, an economic system that's that pays people. To, his profits for cleaning up pollution. And that's beginning to happen. You know, people are developing technologies for uh, taking plastics out of the oceans and, and recycling it. And it pays people to regenerate destroyed environments. And, and, and it pays uh, for real research into new technologies and recycling that doesn't destroy the earth, that, that looks at new ways to, you know, use the energy that can come from the air or from, um, and you know, if you if you if you go to a lot of sites in the in the world, some some of the sacred sites of, of like the Mayans, for example, and you hold a, a pendulum, it immediately starts just rotating rapidly. Huge energy area there. How how could we use that? There's so many possibilities, Michaela. Imagine if we paid Raytheon and General Dynamics to instead of making uh, instruments of war and destruction, uh, we paid them. Uh, to come up with solutions to some of the problems that we're facing in so many areas, transportation, energy, communications. Uh, there's a whole world out there waiting for that to happen. But it means we need to change our goal. And I think, uh, to me, that there was a moment that was extremely important, and that was in 1976 when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Now, Friedman said a lot of good things. I'm not, not criticizing Friedman across the board. But one of the things that that struck most was his his statement, and paraphrasing that the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. He went on to say that if you maximize short-term profits, you will take care of the environmental and social problems, which is not true. It's not proven to be true. Uh, that was a pivotal moment in history. I was in business school before that, and I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for investors, but he also takes care of his employees, pension funds, uh, insurance policies, and retirement, and so on, and takes good care of the communities where, where his company works, not only pays taxes, but also contributes money to recreation centers and so on. I was taught that. That all went out the window after 1976. Companies do everything they can to maximize short-term profits. And that's counter to human development. You know, I, I spend a lot of time with indigenous cultures, and we look at historically, we, we all come from cultures that really emphasize long-term benefits. Take care of your kids, and take care of your kids' kids, and, and so on. And I think what we, we, we have to do at this point is develop a whole new perception and honor those companies and those individuals who really make an effort to create long-term benefits for everyone. You know, it doesn't do any good for you and me to make 50% return on our investment or 35% or so on and send our kids to great colleges if in the process uh, all the insects are vanishing, which is what's happening today, and the animals going extinct and the forests are going extinct and the climate's changing. In the long run, no matter what we do to maximize these short-term profits, if we destroy our ecosystem and our social systems as we know them, what do we gain? 
And I think that's something we've really got to look at is redefining the goal of business should be to create long-term benefits uh, for everyone, basically. Okay, so let's dig in there for a little bit, because I, I do want to understand this, because when I think of big business and, and I think of the stock market and these publicly traded companies, and we talk about a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to maximize profits. So if I take that idea and I take one step back and go, okay, who is buying the shares of these companies? And they might be pension funds, they might be teachers and police officers and uh, firemen and things like that. How... How do we balance that? How do we make sure that these people are getting the right type of return so that they can have the life that they signed up for, the life that they worked so hard for and were promised? If these companies don't maximize profits, how, how does that work, John? I, I want to understand. Well, I'm not saying that in that short-term profits. There's a huge difference here. There's long-term profits, benefits, and there's the short-term. So if we're really worried about what's the stock market doing today or tomorrow in the next quarter, and we're not, not looking at what we're doing to our, our, all of our systems, socioeconomic, ecological systems in the long run, how does that help the fireman or the policeman or anybody else? Well, I think that's an important question to ask. And I think right now we're really seeing, um, Miami's going underwater. Uh, and so is a lot of, a lot of other coastal areas. Uh, that's not going to benefit anyone. Uh, a third of the world's population in China and, and, and uh, India are being threatened in the next 20 years by, by tremendous shortages of water because of the melting glaciers in the Himalayas. That's going to create huge problems. And these companies that, can, that are making short-term uh, uh, windfall profits at this point, uh, what's going to happen to them at that time? I think we really, really need to... Uh, to look at that. We need to look at the, at the long term. And I also think that even though we say that these companies are maximizing profits, can, can you really think that, that Amazon is maximizing profits when its founder is the wealthiest man in the world? I mean, he's, he's taking a lot out of those profits. And a lot of money is going in, in and I don't mean to just single out Amazon. It just happens to be easier today because it's in the news a lot. <laughs> and you know, when they're, when they're going and striking deals for the city of New York so that the, People of New York don't get any tax benefits uh, from having this huge company there. You know, this company is going to use police forces and firemen and so on and so forth, and yet it's not contribute. Its idea was it wasn't going to contribute to the tax base to pay those people. And and these are very serious things that we have to look at. Is 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 the power of these corporations? Are they really maximizing profits even? Uh, and and what are they doing? Uh, to destroy local societies and uh, local cultures, local economies in the process of maximizing those profits. It's also interesting. And I suppose a lot of it really comes down to consumption because, you know, I've traveled really extensively throughout the world and visited more than 100 countries in the world. And I haven't seen the type of consumption that I see back home in North America. But at the same time, like, I don't have a solution on how to reduce consumption. Like, we live quite a minimalist lifestyle. We don't buy too much. You know, we travel, we, we, we fly on jets and, and go around, but we spend a lot of our money on experiences. But how, how do people learn how to consume less so that we are not putting such a strain on the environment? Well, it's a matter of perception, I think, it um, I've really been looking at this and writing about this, that there's really two kinds of reality, two general kinds of reality. There's objective reality, uh, the microphone that we're talking over right now, and then there's perceived reality, which is really what we're talking about. And when you think about it, uh, almost all human actions and, and human institutions are driven by, per by perception. So there is no United States. There's no Abu Dhabi. There's no, uh, there's, you know, there's no Canada. There's no Venezuela. There's no religion. There's no culture. There are no corporations except as, as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on objective reality. And our perceived reality today is that 
in general, and there's many exceptions for individuals, but in general, our perceived reality is that we must get more and more things materialistically. If I don't have such and such a car, there's something wrong with me. If I don't wear such and such brands of clothes or look such and such a way, I'm not going to be successful. I'm not going to get a good spouse. I'm not whatever. You know, it's that whole, it's that whole perception that, that revolves around consumption that's driven by this non-capitalist capitalist system. If you want to, I don't know what you can call it. I call it predatory capitalism, which is the system that we have today, uh, an aberration of true capitalism. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process of, of changing perception. So if you look, Mikhail, at, at what happened in 1976, in that one moment when, the, when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize, suddenly perception changed. Now, there'd been a growing idea that you need to maximize short-term profits. Uh, Frederick von Heineken, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years before uh, Friedman, had said something very similar. But Friedman really hit a note, and he was very popular in the United States and very famous and very good friends and very respected by Reagan and, and Thatcher and other world leaders. So he really caught on. That changed everything. It changed what I had been brought up with in in, in uh, business school. Of yes, make a decent rate of return for investors, but also be a good citizen. Have your company be a good citizen. That changed, and we can change it again. If you look throughout history, there's amazing changes, you know. And it took people changing perceptions. We, we, we you know, apartheid in South Africa uh, got rid of it because people boycotted or threatened to boycott corporations that supported it. Uh, we convinced the car manufacturers to put seatbelts in the car. That was a huge struggle. Uh, and, 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 uh, food manufacturers to label the amount of calories and fats and so on and so forth in their foods. And recently, if you look at the changes of attitude and laws in, in many countries, including the United States around, uh, homosexuality and transgender, we've seen, we've seen phenomenal changes. It, it can happen quickly and it has, it, it requires a change of perception. And so uh, what I maintain is what we need to do is now redefine what it means to be successful. And to be successful means to uh, create a lifestyle, to create companies, to create businesses that look for the long-term benefits, uh, not not just the short-term benefits, but the long-term benefits for for all. And by all, I don't just mean human beings. I also mean animals and plants, because what's this planet without it? We recently learned that 40% of the world's insect species have vanished in the last couple of decades. Uh, that's that's nice if you don't want to be bitten by mosquitoes that get malaria. That's nice. But what is it? what's the implication for the long-term survival of the forests and the birds and other animals that depend on these insects? Well, and then I suppose there's all the arguments about, you know, this is the only planet we have. This is our only home. And once we destroy these things, there's really no turning back. Correct, you know, and and that's another perception that we're beginning, I think, to get more and more. You know, it started with the, the Apollo astronauts who sent back these pictures and, and went to the moon and looked back at the Earth and saw this amazing blue planet, uh, blue green. And and you you got to think, you know, I mean, we, we, it's obvious we, we're living on a space station, but this one doesn't have any shuttles. We can't get off. I mean, maybe Eli Musk will get off and go to Mars or something, but most of us don't get off, and we don't want to get off. You know, it's a beautiful place. So we have to take care of it. So we have to change our perception to realize that that is the most important job we have for our, ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. It doesn't matter if, if I can somehow get my grandson into a great college. Uh, you know, that's sort of what people think. How do I take care of my kids' future, my grandkids' future? Get them into a great college. Yeah. Great. They graduate from that great college. They get tons of debt, and they're smothering in, in an atmosphere that's that's poisoning itself. And the oceans are rising, and the glaciers are melting, and and people are getting more and more desperate. or don't have water, or don't have food, or that you know we're already seeing these huge migration issues coming up. So we really need to look at uh, what does it mean uh, to benefit ourselves and our progeny. Well, okay, so straight off the bat, I am a hard-toward libertarian, and one of the main things that I believe is do not encroach on other people or their property. But really, when I 
start to read about these types of big corporations and the corporatocracy and what happens, they are encroaching on me. They are encroaching on me by polluting the rivers. They're encroaching on me um, by cutting down rainforests and things like that, because that actually belongs to all of humanity. That belongs to the entire planet. Yeah, it's a dilemma. So what are we doing right now, Mikhail? We're, we're talking over a system that I, I, I suspect that most all of the Internet today is, is controlled essentially by Amazon one way or another through their, uh, their clouds, etc., uh, Zoom, the whole, you know, Skype, Google, all of this. These are, these are, these are offering us tremendous benefits. You and I can have this conversation. You're in the Middle East. I'm, I'm on an island off the coast of Seattle. Uh, people are going to be listening to this probably all over the world. That's amazing. At the same time, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is driving the corporations that are providing these services to us? How much control do they have and what are their goals and what are their intents? And I think it's really important for us all to look at these things and to force the, the, the people that run these organizations, the, the, the Jeff Bezos of the world and, 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 and the others to really look at these issues. And I, th I think that's happening. I think people are waking up. I travel around the world speaking all the time. I just came back from five countries in Latin America. I just got home a week ago. Uh, where I was speaking and at, at various venues and so forth. I'm, I'm headed to the Caribbean in a month and then after that to Europe, the Czech Republic and other places where I speak in these places. I've shared a stage in, in, in Russia with, with Putin uh, a couple of years ago at a big economic conference in China. And, and everywhere I go though, I, I, I find that people are waking up. They want to hear these. They're asking the very same questions or similar questions to the ones you're asking and the ones I'm asking. People are getting it. And that gives me great encouragement that people are getting it. And the next step is, you know, we're beginning to understand the problem. Now we've got to realize that the way to fix that problem is to change our perception of basically what it means to be human on this planet. What is our role as human beings? As, as the guardians of this planet, you know, the species that can, that controls everything basically. What, what does that mean and how do we react to that? Let me, let me give you an image. I, I, I sometimes start the speeches that I give. Sometimes it depends on the audience, but I say, Hey, you know, just imagine for a moment that you come from another solar system and you're on a, on a, some sort of a, like an amazing craft because, uh, you know, it's, it's something, you're hovering above the Earth, and you're obviously a very intelligent species because you've been able to do this. And you're looking down at the planet Earth. What do you see? And I give them a moment, and then I say, well, yeah, you see an amazing, beautiful planet with incredible resources. And as you look more closely, you see that there's one species that dominates this planet, and they seem to have gone crazy. They're, they're killing each other, literally. They're fighting each other, and they're, they're tearing up all the resources. They're destroying the very resources upon which their economic system depends. So what do you do? You look down and you see them. What do you do? Well, maybe, you know, you, you decide to watch for a while, and you might even decide that, God, they, they've got to change. If, if, if they don't change, they, they're going to have to go. One way or another, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna have to change one way or another. And I think that's a, um, a, a you know, a, a, a remarkable image. And then I also say, but if you look at one part of the planet, and that's the Amazon, the headwaters of the Amazon area, just uh, just east of the Andes Mountains, where I spend a lot of time, and you see there a number of what we call tribes, and I'm known as nations, that have been at war with each other for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. Tremendous violent warfare, headhunting, headhunting, just really, really violent. But in the last 20 years, they've understood that to protect their lands, they don't, they don't, fight, they used to think they had to fight their neighbors to protect their hunting grounds. Now they realize that they and their neighbors all have to come together to keep the oil companies out. And then they realize that they've also got to come together and bring in some of us from the outside world. We formed an organization called Pachamama Alliance to, to convince the whole world that it's got to change its perception, what they call the dream of the world, uh, to go out across the world and let people know the only way, ultimately, we're going to protect the Amazon and all, all our other environments is if we change our dream, they put it, which really means the perception, to become, in, in their words, uh, to, to create a more environmentally sustainable 
spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. And I think, so if, you, if you're in the spacecraft and you're looking down, you see this species that's kind of, that's gone crazy, that's destroying itself on this planet, but then you see one area where something remarkable has happened in over 20 years. And if people that have been enemies for hundreds, thousands of years can come together and now they're intermarrying and they're forming these federations uh, to really, and they're traveling around the world to bring this message. If they can do that, then can't we get along with the Russians, who were our allies during World War II? Can't we get along with the Japanese, who are our, who were our enemies and now are our friends? And the Chinese, can't we understand that we live on this very fragile planet and we've all got to come together uh, to make it work for our future uh, generations? And I think we also need to understand that whenever there's a revolution, and I think what we're going through now is a consciousness revolution. People are waking up. And whenever there's a revolution, there's a setback by those who think that they benefit from the status quo. And so we're seeing in the United States with all the dilemmas in our politics, with what's going on with Trump, we're seeing it in, in, with Brexit, we're, see, we're seeing it all over with Venezuela, we're, see, we're seeing it all over. That there's this, that the, the, you know, there's a, there's a few people sitting on top of the economic pyramid who don't want change. And so as the consciousness is awakening that we must change, they're putting on the brakes. That always happens. But I think that should give us strength. It's kind of like martial arts. I've been a martial artist most of my life. And you, you know that when somebody comes at you strong, you don't try to, you don't try to defeat their strength. You try to use it against them. You try to turn it around, you know, re reverse the energy flow. And, and I think that's what we've got to look at now that I see the, the resistance that's happening, uh, in, including here in my own country is, as a very positive sign that the shadow is coming, is the light is being shown on the shadow and people are waking up and we just need to keep waking, awakening. And now we need to start taking more and more actions to bring this new consciousness, this new perception to, to manifest it into a new reality. So do you think that's why people like Elon Musk with Tesla have just become so wildly popular? Because people are starting to wake up to these ideas and they can see the need for change and, and, and doing so with an electric car and these type of vehicles? Yes. Yeah, I, I think people are grasping for, for things like this. I think they're, they're, you know, they look at a, a Musk as a, as a great role model in terms of someone who dares to go out there and do the impossible. And in a way, Musk is doing what, when I was in high school, Kennedy did, you know? Uh, we were terrified of the Russians. They, they were way ahead of us in the space program. And Kennedy says, we're going to land men on the moon and bring them home within 10 years. It was impossible. Everybody, you know, you just couldn't possibly believe it. Well, it happened in less than 10 years. It happened in nine years that, that Armstrong walked on the moon. It happened, and unfortunately, Kennedy didn't live to see it happen. But I think Musk is in that same genre where, where we're, we're, and we're looking for someone to stand up and say, hey, I can do the impossible, and right now we need to do the impossible, and the impossible is not impossible. Um, you know, it's interesting that whenever I speak of China, I get a lot of negative feedback, like, the, you know, the Chinese are the enemies, they're doing terrible things, and they are. You know, I just came from Latin America where, I've seen the Chinese really taking over uh, the economic hitman business there and, and doing some very shoddy work. They built a dam in Ecuador, a huge one that's it cracks in it. It's, it's, it's shoddy workmanship. They're doing some bad things, and, and they're taking over some of these economies. Um, but at the same time, I do think that the Chinese have suffered through such terrible pollution in, in their own country that they're working very hard to develop new technologies for that. And, and, and they are certainly beating out the Americans around the world now. The World Bank is losing out to the Chinese banks. There's two big international Chinese, uh, Chinese managed banks, the BRICS Bank and the AIIB Bank, which are really run by the Chinese, although other countries are involved. Uh, that the Chinese are making huge inroads and we, we need to understand that and, and understand that somehow, we all on this planet, all human beings, we, we must come together. We, we must realize that we're all facing a very dire situation. Uh, and we must come together and, and realize that, you know, we, we've got to take care of the space station we live on.
I love it. Brilliant. John, that was a fascinating conversation. I actually came on today expecting we were going to get really into depth on economics, but uh, I've been surprised and, uh, and treated. I have a lot more reading to do about this myself, and I definitely encourage my listeners to do the same because I think this is really important. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, John, and they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Well, the best thing to do would be to go to my website, johnperkins.org. And there's a little box that they put in their email address. They'll get my monthly newsletter. It's short and pithy, remarkably brilliant. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. But it, they won't get overwhelmed by information. But they will also learn where I'm going to be speaking because that comes at the bottom of the newsletter. And, and trips I take people. I'd love to have some of your listeners join me on trips to the indigenous people uh, to the, the Kogi of Colombia, the Maya of, of, of uh, Guatemala, indigenous people in the Amazon, etc. But the best thing to do is go to my website, johnperkins.org. I'm also on Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, love to hear from, from your listeners. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, John, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? My great pleasure, Mikhail. Keep up your great work. You are not facing global uncertainty alone. There is help. Arm yourself with the foresight that only Early Warning Report, EWR, can provide. Since 1991, Richard Mayberry, editor of Early Warning Report, has guided readers in simple, fast-reading, direct language toward ways to protect their wealth against political, military, and financial chaos governments are causing around the world. The performance of your investments is determined mostly by the performance of the economy, and the performance of the economy is determined by law and politics. To know how your investments will behave, you must know how governments will behave. Often citing historical parallels, Early Warning Report doesn't just explain what is happening to you. It suggests ways to protect your savings. It suggests ways to protect your savings and earn profits. We challenge you to find any publication with a better track record. Between 1989 and 2007, geopolitics and the military events were dominant, offering huge profits. From 2007 to 2017, economics was the focus. Now Mr. Mayberry forecasts that geopolitics and military events have returned to center stage. These revelations and insights are available only in Early Warning Report. Take advantage of this time-limited offer. Order today. Join the exclusive group of well-informed readers who are highly skeptical of the analysis they receive from the mainstream media. Claim your 40% off of the cover price of Early Warning Report. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.